In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. As you get older, people are going to offer you more stuff, but you just have to be a bit careful. Like, I personally have never been offered cocaine or anything like that. On what age are you? 16. But I know people that older in the year above that would have been. Is that people in school? Yeah, that's people in school. But you just hear from other people, you know, like, everyone's shocked, like, when you when you do hear it. And where would people your age be taking cocaine? I think house parties and just meeting up and stuff like that, yeah. Is it easily accessible for people your age? I would say if you wanted it, you could get it eventually. Like When you come of age now where you can go to nightclubs, is it something that you would be nervous about seeing? Um, yeah, but I think once you just are able to know what's right and wrong and just have your head screwed on. Like. Elaine Smith reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, are we becoming an increasingly distracted society? And have we lost the art of listening? Well, on Saturday, Down to Business explored the listening shift with Jamie Van Hool. You mentioned technology there. And could I maybe suggest to you that one of the biggest barriers to listening is people on their phones or being preoccupied by some sort of technical device um, uh, in, in that it's a huge barrier to listening. Oh, I totally agree with you, Bobby. And, you know, even even in Italy a couple of years ago, remember that, uh, when I was at supper and I saw a table of four people, a family of four, and and I always think the Italians are so kind of passionate about their children and interacting. They were all on their phones. And that really does stop us listening. We're interacting with technology and we're not connecting with each other. And I've seen leaders actually in conversations with people where they should be listening, but actually they're, you know, emptying their emails or dealing with another problem. And and we're all distracted, actually, even as a mum. You know, if, if I'm cooking and my kids are telling me something, I'm not really listening. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm split focus. And yeah. But, that but, is but aside from listening, it's also rude, is it not, to be to be, you know, entertained by a device when you're you know, meant to be interacting with a human. Uh, like there's a there's a manners, a basic manners thing about it as well, separate to the listening. Yeah, you'd think, Bobby, wouldn't you? But you know what? My my daughter works for a big company and she expressed to me recently, she said, you know, what she's noticed is that if you're not multitasking on a Teams meeting, for example, one of those virtual online meetings she said if you're not doing something else at the same time the perception is you're not really busy enough Jenny. yeah and so i think this sort of behavior is becoming i don't think people like it like everyone will say oh my god you know they're on their phone but actually somehow we are all falling into the trap of doing it because everyone's so busy you talk about the main categories of listening Janie. um listening to solve, switching and listening to support. Tell me more about those. Yeah, so, I mean, of course, people will say, well, there's so many ways of listening. I was just trying to simplify it, really. I think it's certainly in business, um, because of pressures and time and aspiration and whatever, listening to solve is something that we do often without being asked. So a colleague might be expressing um, a frustration with a customer or a client and actually instead of listening we feel an urgent need to offer them a solution so I'm I'm not saying that it's the wrong thing to do but I'm asking people to be aware if they're a problem solver 
or a supporter when they're listening. Um, switching is like a kind of narcissism almost. You know, if you if you're telling someone about your holiday at a party, um, you know, oh, I, I, you know, I've just come back from Spain. And, and then the other person will very likely say, oh, I don't really like Spain. I went to Portugal and my holiday in Portugal was so fantastic. Um, and, Where they and that, direct the conversation to their agenda. Is that what you yes, mean? Yeah. Yeah. And this is very common. And and again, I'm not saying it's the wrong thing to do because it can provide a lot of energy. But what we've got to be really mindful about is, do I then go back to the other person and say, so tell me about Spain? Because otherwise, it's really frustrating just to have your your thought or expression hijacked by someone else. So the art of listening to support is really, it sounds a bit, um, you know, potentially long winded, but actually... It's letting the other person have their space, letting the other person use you as a sounding board before we move the conversation on. And and my own experience and my observation in business is that there's not much of that for whatever reason. There's always a separate agenda. There's always a time pressure. There's always a, you know, a view um, that, that cause other people to not listen to support. So that's the one that I'm really advocating we spend a bit more time on. Right. Just listen um, without driving the conversation forward. Some terrific insights there from coach advisor and skills trainer, Janie Van Hool from Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. And of course, you can tune into Bobby every Saturday morning from 10 till 12. Now, uh, 55% of Irish people are not highly satisfied with their lives. That's according to a new government report on well-being. Well-being, even, not well-bling. Uh, there's lots of well-bling around, all right. Uh, Trinity sociologist Evelyn Mahan joins us now to discuss this. Um, Evelyn, like, we live in a, in a developed country, uh, substantial social welfare. We're way wealthier than we are. We've way more stuff than we would have had. We live in a... Uh, I suppose a gentler, kinder, more compassionate society. We're we're regularly told, at least. Why are we not happy? Why are we not happier? Well, I mean, I think you might be expecting a bit too much there, because even though forty-five uh, percent of us are dissatisfied, it's actually higher than the European average of twenty-five percent. So, like all things, I think you have to take statistics like this in a context, and I think. The context in which this particular report is produced is, a, is an overall positive one because it's, it's developing what they call a well-being framework for Ireland. And they've used a lot of indicators to really give an insight into how people experience their everyday lives in a lot of different contexts. So they're looking at the person themselves, their subjective well-being, their mental health, their wealth. They're looking at then at factors related to the place in which people live and to general aspects of their society and work. So mm. I think it's a welcomed first step. Now, it is it is starting the conversation. You've already started it, actually, on your programme, because it is put out there now as the initial stage of asking us really as a people what we expect of life in Ireland. What okay. are the things that are important to us? And can we in Ireland develop social policies that will help us live better lives and happier lives? Okay, uh, Evelyn, your line is popping a little bit. I don't know if you can. Um, I don't know if there's anything you can do to 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 adjust it. Probably not. Just, I I, I want to come back to the original point though. We have more things. We're wealthier. 
Uh, we live um, in a you know in a society that many of us would be quite proud of now compared to say thirty years ago. And we we constantly hear about the grim nineteen eighties and the grim nineteen seventies. I I don't remember them being that grim myself personally, but yeah, we're not a, we're we're less happy then. We're less happy now than we were then. Like, is there is there something in that? I mean, is there is it just the old lesson that materialism doesn't necessarily make you happy? Are we missing? God, dare I say it? I'll be hammered for it. Are we missing spirituality and the influence of the church? Uh, no, I'm. Not, I don't think we've much evidence to say we were happier then, really, um, because this is the first time some of these data has been have been collected in Ireland. I think what you have is some people probably much happier and doing much better than others. I think that's definitely true. So the question we would be asking really is why are, you know, so many people still unhappy and what are the reasons for it? Is it related to unemployment, to poverty, to increased expectations? I was going to say increased expectations. Do we we look at other people who are doing even better and go, I want that. I want the bigger house. I want the bigger car. I want more designer clothes. I want more holidays. Is that some of it? Well, I think I think what you call relative deprivation is a very big factor in people's lives. People certainly expect more of life and the standard of living has risen for the richest. And really the, that spills down to everybody. So even people who don't have incomes or do not working, they expect a similar standard of life to other people. That's certainly the case and that's true in all societies. Shane Coleman on News Talk Breakfast. You took to social media over the weekend to outline something that had happened to you. Just tell us about this, Darren. So at the weekend, I was minding my own business, enjoying the sun that cracked out on Saturday evening. And the biggest dilemma in my life at that moment in time was what to have for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) My favourite decision. A great thing to have to worry about. Yeah, exactly. And I decided it was going to be Thai my favourite food so I went up to Camden Street which was just to actually just to feel a bit of the buzz people were out enjoying themselves and whatnot. and my boyfriend went in to collect our order and I was standing outside minding my own business and these group this group of lads came past and one of them before I even knew it pretty much had his finger in my face saying there's the faggot off the telly and I was stunned to be honest I, I just completely out of the blue and these guys you know not that it's important what age they were, but they weren't teenagers. You know, these are guys who are certainly in their 20s, if not approaching a late okay. 20s. And you would hope would know better. And, um, you know, I've spent my life brushing off that type of comment. And it would have been really easy for me just to kind of go park it and go, you know, I'm well able to deal with mm. it. Water off a duck back, duck's back, which it is. But at the same time, I just kind of, I'm standing there going, I'm a 40 year old man in the middle of Dublin city centre. And someone is just after using one of the most violent terms that could be used against me, if I'm being brutally honest. And in that moment in time, I kind of shrunk and it brought me back to a time in my life where I felt um, very vulnerable and almost hopeless and shameful. And that's the really big thing, because I had so much shame when I was in my teenage years coming to terms with my own sexuality that in that one word so loaded yeah. and probably meant nothing to that person. Um, he probably didn't even know what it meant. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it just brought me to this place. And I kind of that's just I had to call it out. It's just not good enough. Hard to believe it's 2021, Darren, and you're 
you're dealing with this. So, as you say, still dealing with this. Mm. And you know, it's not the first time that it's happened. I mean, over the years, obviously it happens and I just brush it off and ignore it. And I know from uh, lots of other LGBT people, it happens very regularly. And the worrying thing is, Andrea, that, you know, the feedback from this has been phenomenal. And I have to say from everybody across yeah. the board. And, you know, so many parents and teachers and, uh, you know, people from all different walks of life saying it's disgusting. But also then the feedback from people within the LGBT community saying, that unfortunately they have noticed a rise in this type of behaviour. And in that's the really. Months or? It, yeah, I'd say over the past 12 to 18 months, you know, and, and one person just said, you know, definitely during the pandemic that has noticed a marked rise okay. I, in this kind of homophobic, everyday casual homophobic slur. Because I would have thought there was kind of a, maybe a bit of a common misconception that homophobia, that it, it no longer exists. It no, it's, it's it very much exists, and 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 that's the thing. And I think a lot of people, a lot of, you know, the vast majority of people, yeah. good people, would be right in thinking that because that's how they think. But in actual fact, you know, when you look at marriage equality, which was over six years mm. ago now, massive step forward, as we all know. But I sometimes feel that it was one step forward, two steps back, and it's like progress takes you know a long time. And whilst legislatively we have come on like a quantum leap Mm. in terms of the everyday, not necessarily. And if you look at, and I'm sure teachers would probably be the front line of this, you know, oftentimes the first word that is, you know, first slur in the playground is fag or faggot. And that still persists. And a lot of people who say it have no idea how deeply yeah. that can cut and I think that's the problem so I think it's it's really important that we continue to talk about it and I know great strides have been made there's groups like Belong To who uh, offer you know a safe space for young people they have a new schools programme and they've signed up 20 schools over the past year or so and actually I'm familiar with it because I recently launched their their latest annual report we had uh, the Minister for Equality Roderick O'Gorman uh, speaking keynote speaker and it's fantastic that top levels of government are are behind this. Yeah. And you even look around, it was Pride Month. Yeah. I mean, it's, the and flags are everywhere. It's very visible. I, I wonder, is, is is that one of the... Is it more common something like this during, you know, coming off the back of, of Pride Month? To, to answer you, I don't know. Yeah, I don't okay. know. But, you know, even a very good friend of mine there recently was saying that he got called fag by a group of like 15-year-olds on bikes and he felt and again it's like this whole thing where it transports you back to a really vulnerable yeah, time and you shouldn't have to feel that no one should have to feel that No, absolutely I think, not and you know, When you were there on, on Camden Street um, on Saturday, Darren as you mentioned was there anyone else around you? Like I just wonder what was the reaction of the, the public or people bystanders in the street when they heard this? The street was thriving there was loads of people on the street yeah. I don't think anyone would have noticed okay. because I was kind of standing on my own waiting outside a shop people were dining people yeah. were having drinks so no one it was so fleeting that no one would have even noticed and and I was kind of thinking to myself what would people have done if they had have heard it and I've no doubt that people would have been appalled yeah, like any of your listeners yeah, and, yeah. but there was no reaction in that sense I had no reaction <laughs> I, I kind of just Smiled. Freeze. He froze <laughs> a little froze. bit. Yeah. And then I walk off and I forgot about it. And I went, that's ridiculous. And I said a little story. And then I, I thought about it a, a little bit more. Mm. And I went, this is just wrong, you know. And I'm someone who's, you know, I've dealt with all the things you have to deal with when you're discovering who you are. And I've come out the other side. But I, I think, well, A, 
I shouldn't have to be brought back to that place. No one should. And B, there are still thousands and thousands of young people and not so young Mm. people struggling with their identity. Some brave words there from television presenter, columnist and entrepreneur Darren Kennedy from Lunchtime Live. On Sunday, News Talk Breakfast explored women's healthcare in Ireland. Here's Aideen Finnegan. Linia Don, you, um, you had a birth injury that you found quite difficult to get a, a medic to take seriously. I did, yeah. Um, now, that was in the UK and I've given birth in the UK once and in Ireland once and had very different experiences, both good and bad in different ways. But um, it was the first birth that left me with an injury. And originally when I went to the GP at first to complain about something being wrong, um, nothing was done about it. It was kind of fobbed off as normal, I suppose, because most women do have pain after giving birth. Um, and I had to go back a number of times and I, I tried to get midwives to look at it. And, you know, when you give birth, something changes um, in that you've spent a number of months seeing healthcare professionals constantly and they can't get enough of you and they're taking your blood pressure and you're this holy miracle person almost and then you give birth and suddenly it's all about the baby Um, and I know a lot of women experience that that after you give birth you kind of you know so much focus is on weighing the baby and how you're going to feed the baby and how the baby is thriving but it's easy to forget that the mother has also gone through a huge change and in my case um, I had a traumatic birth that ended ended up with um, an episiotomy and a forceps delivery and I was left with a birth injury that, that I will have to live with for the rest of my life one way or another. Um, and I did get care eventually. In the UK, I was sent for um, reconstructive surgery four months after the birth of my oldest son. Um, but even after that, when I came to Ireland and I gave birth again, and I had a wonderful experience here, um, afterwards, there was no kind of sense of, of that being talked about or anyone checking that I was actually doing okay. And it was only years later that when I started running again, uh, that things got really bad. And even then, I went I went to the GP here in Ireland at, um, and she kind of just, it was as if I was just annoying her uh, with this problem that she had to do an internal examination and she just wanted me to get out of there. And she looked at me and confirmed that I had prolapse and then said, well, look, there's nothing on the public system unless you want to wait a year and a half. So, you know, and I was sent off with very little um, support and I was quite put off by it I was quite upset and felt lonely and let down because I felt as though this was something that I barely even knew existed and I wasn't given any advice as to how to deal with it. You're you're originally from Sweden so you sort of have three different experiences of or three different health systems Sweden the UK and here so did you notice a big culture difference I mean what you complained of there would that have happened in Sweden? It's probably unfair of me to compare because I haven't lived in Sweden as an adult, really. So a lot has changed in Sweden since I left and the system there, which used to be public, um, is kind of a two-tier system now as well and it's being increasingly privatised. But I think, in my opinion, that is part of the problem that I see here, um, that some people have health insurance and you can pay your way to seeing the best consultants uh, and some people can't. And if you can't, you have to wait a very long time. But even if you can, it feels as though the system is quite disjointed. So your GP can refer you to, say, a gynecologist. 
But if that gynecologist then, then says, well, actually, I think you probably need to see an endocrinologist or a urologist, actually, then you end up paying out a number of different times because actually the GP didn't know in the first place what was really going on with this condition because it's the women's health problem. Mm. Um, and so you end up being kind of sent around and spending quite a lot of money before you get any answers at all. And also those consultants often seem to not really be talking to each other. So it's quite hard to get consistent care and to not have to repeat yourself every single time you go and see a new healthcare professional. That is definitely replicated right across the the health system, I I think, too. Jean, the language that's used to frame healthcare, I mean, even the etymology of hysteria and all the rest of it, I mean, it is still very much embedded in how we speak about women's healthcare, isn't it? Yeah, um, you know, I kind of I was talking to the producer, and I was like, Carl, the kind of a ghetto women's healthcare is pushed into that corner. It's a women's issue, and um, there was a New York Times profile recently of a scientist. Her name is Linda Griffith, and she's working on endometriosis. But her whole thing is she's trying to change it from a women's issue to an MIT issue, which is where she works. And her kind of um, justification for that is the branding of it as a women's issue keeps it because endometriosis is seen as benign it won't kill you kind of thing but it does have huge impacts so it can get overlooked because it's just associated with it. and it's not just periods you know it's lots of other things as well so you know that kind of you know like you know you think of women's health you think the color pink is used a lot that kind of stuff so it just gets pushed into women's hospitals stuff like that so and as you know, Linnea was talking about this disjointed healthcare. You can have like a women's health condition, but it can have impact on lots of other secondary conditions and comorbidities, stuff like this. That I think that the branding of it and talking about it, we need to talk about them as societal problems as opposed to just women's problems. We do indeed. Writers Linnea Dunn and Jean Sutton from Youth Talk Breakfast. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk. I have to say, straight away there, I feel a certain empathy with any man who has that fear because I feel there are times that you might feel, some men might feel, that they're they're kind of almost stumbling into a world where the people they're talking to know an awful lot more about it than them and have been thinking about it a lot longer than them and are much more involved in it than them. And and what what you're saying as a man can be just naive. Really hard, yes, absolutely. I mean, not, uh, not knowing what to say or saying something wrong, and that could be like a huge fear. You know, any type of allyship that you're supporting, if you're speaking for any cause, which you don't know much about, it's it it is very understandable that people can be scared and anxious. And and then of course with men there's also this stigmatization through association or the dreaded whim penalty, where they might fear backlash and disapproval from fellow peers and you know, from fellow men. So that is also one of the reasons. And then of course Sorry, did you say the wimp penalty? Yes. (laughs) Wow. It's a uh, it's a whip penalty is is a um, is a term which has been researched in in various reports and it says that men who support gender equality sometimes they face backlash um, from and disapproval from from their peers and there is a loss of status and men look to other men for affirmation of their masculinity so when that happens then of course they go in their own shell and they don't want to talk about this issue anymore. Right. I find that idea makes me much more <laughs> enthusiastic because if, if some of my peers were going to subject me to the wimp penalty, I wouldn't be happy. 
Absolutely. Yes. Okay, so carry on then. Um, So for men who think I would like to do more, where does it begin? I think the very first thing is is choosing to challenge yourself. That's the easiest, right? Um, and the thing is, you have to understand that this is this is a journey, right? You yeah. cannot have all the answers, and it is okay to make mistakes. I think that is something which which we really need to convey. Um, that if you do make mistakes, I think what is what's go- what's going to be appreciated is is just apologizing and acknowledging your responsibility and and just moving on from there. I think genuine apology is going to be seen um, well by everybody and it's going to be taken well by everybody rather than half-hearted cover-ups. Okay. Um, so if you do make mistakes, it's fine. Just apologize, move on. And then start looking at things around you. Educate yourself. Recognize your privilege. And by privilege, I don't mean that you haven't gone through any challenges as a man. Uh, what we only mean is that you haven't gone through the same challenges um, as women have, perhaps. So looking at those those challenges, okay. recognizing the bias. Yeah. Uh, these are some of the things. And, and listening, not dismissing women and not assuming positive intent and saying, oh, well, you know, he didn't mean that. Yeah. Uh, b- because women have been snubbed off for too long. And, and a lot of times they're not believed when they say they have been a victim of harassment or sexism. So just believing them and not okay. attaching your own assumptions. To, to look at the first time you said challenging yourself, that, that can be a very hard thing, though, can't it? Because you're, Absolutely. you're, you're really you're not aware very often of many of the biases that, are, that sometimes can be very, very difficult deeply and rooted in you. You've grown up in a house with your, your parents and that generation who have different views, who had different views, and they can be in you in ways that can be hard for you to fathom at times. See, the thing is, um, honestly, everybody is biased. So am I. You know what? As a woman, I can have bias against other women too. So it's not just men. I think acknowledging the fact that bias in its own is not a bad thing to have because if okay. you say I'm not biased, that you're defying science exactly. because you know your brain has been been uh, the functionality of the brain is such that that to process information our brain creates filters and shortcuts and without these shortcuts we'll have to sift through an overload of information. So, but the, these shortcuts have a downside. They compartmentalize patterns based on the cumulative effect of everything we've been exposed to as a result of which we oversimplify and generalize things. And that leads to bias. And that's, it's okay to have bias. I think it's all you need to do is, is to step back and recognize that things could be different. You know, just ask yourself this question. Is this assumption always true? Am I making any assumptions? Am, is my belief based on limited knowledge? Uh, or is there any evidence to support my belief or to negate it? So things like that. I mean, if you step back and start questioning yourself, then there will be a time that you you will start acknowledging your own bias and and you will um, be able to act upon it too and and refrain from actually refrain from acting upon it. (laughs) What an interesting perspective from writer and researcher Hira Ali from Moncrief. Matt, hey, good morning. Uh, Good morning. Nice to be here, Jonathan. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you. Um, people will be familiar, perhaps, with your novel, The Midnight Library, which I think was out, uh, was it earlier this year? Um, it was out, yes, in paperback in February and uh, last year, end of last year in hardback, yeah. Yeah, so th- that was a novel, but your new book, The Comfort Book, is very different. And if you don't mind me saying, it's very personal, isn't it? Yes. It is very different. I suppose the common theme is kind of one of self-acceptance. But in this book, unlike the Midnight Library, um, there's some autobiographical stuff in there. 
And, um, yeah, I mean, there's mentions of my own issues with uh, mental health um, problems, which I first had in my 20s. I'm 46 now. But, yes, it's drawn on experiences of recovering from suicidal depression, in part um, dealing occasionally with bouts of anxiety and that stuff. It's not just a mental health book. It's about, you know, the theme of comfort in the broadest sense. But, yeah, there's a lot of personal um, detail in that. And we'll get to the comfort bit in a minute, but you, you had a tough time in your 20s by the sound of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I was suicidal for about um, three years. I, I, at the age of 24, I had a breakdown, um, went back to live with my parents, was agoraphobic. I was diagnosed with a panic disorder, which is this disorder basically where you're either in the state of having a full-blown panic attack or you're in a feeling of absolute terror or depression about the next one. And I was sort of trapped in that um, cycle for a long time. And the thing with mental illness is you think it's just about the mind, but this was such a physical thing. You know, it, it affected my whole body. It made me feel very heavy, very sluggish, very lethargic, um, you know, heart palpitations, all of it. And I, 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 the reason I was suicidal was just because I thought, oh, I'm never going to get out of this. I'm going to be here forever, which obviously wasn't true, but it was a depression um, talking. And um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm in 100% perfect mental health now. I don't sort of believe in saying that now because then it just makes you feel worse the next time you have about. But I'm in a very different place to where I was. I'm certainly no longer suicidal. Um, and I'm feeling a lot better and a lot more grateful about things these days. So I find it easier to write about it because I can sort of go go back. But yeah, it was a tough, it was a tough old time, and it took a long time to sort of get on my feet um, mentally, and then you know, with work and stuff. Um, but I was very lucky in that I had a, a very supportive partner, um, parents who sort of let me live with them and were great. And, uh, yeah, I had a close network of people. So I was very privileged in that sense. Um, But, yeah, it was a long road. One of the things I I like about the book and about how you write it is that that you found joy again in daily routines and accepting yourself with all your faults. Because when you're in that dark space, you can't enjoy things. And you you can't. can't enjoy yourself. You can't click your fingers and snap out of it or put on a brave face or smile it away. You definitely can't. But at the same point, I can remember parts in a lot of the things I appreciate most in life stem from when I was most ill, which sounds like a paradox. But in a way, it was true because I felt like even though I wasn't able to be happy, I I, I so wanted to live and to appreciate normal things. So something like simple, like looking at the sky, I can remember once taking the bins out and just sort of standing there like a weirdo, just staring at the sky. But think little simple things like that take on this incredible power. And it's not, not like you are um, feeling instantly better by looking at it, but you, you, you're thinking, yes, I want to sort of stay in the universe. And everything becomes this heightened state. And so while you're going through depression, that's terrible. But when you're recovering and when you're learning to live again, you can sort of take this new knowledge and actually... Mm. Um, in some ways, when you're better, have a better life than you did before you were ill because you've got this newfound understanding of life and existence and all that. 
Uh, there's lots of really good quotes in it. I mentioned just before the ad break there the messy miracle of being alive, which I love. But the other one that resonates with me is your own mind might make prisons, but it also gives you the keys. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, going back to my worst point, you know, I, I felt I was locked. So I felt like I was literally trapped inside myself and stuff. And it's so tempting always to, to think, well, I need some external situation, something to save me. And sometimes there isn't something external that can come in. Yes, you can go to the doctor. Yes, you can prescribe treatment. But often a lot of that treatment involves something that has to come from you. So ultimately, I, you, you have to believe, and I, I know from my own experience, there are things you can do. Even if you've got a chronic condition, there are ways to appreciate and get a new perspective on that condition. So one key thing for me was um, changing the way I saw my illness. Like, so instead of seeing myself as a depressive, I used to say, oh, I'm a depressive, I, I changed it to think I'm a person who's experiencing depression. Now, that might seem like the same thing, but actually it was a fundamental difference because it meant that I was this bigger person than depression mm. and I was currently experiencing it almost like we experience weather you know you can be trapped in a hurricane and the hurricane be, can be absolutely horrendous but you always know however dangerous that hurricane is you're not the hurricane yeah. whereas I was confusing myself with the experience I was going through and breaking that link between the two w was kind of important so that was kind of like turning the key for me and um, you know I, I'm not a Buddhist by any means, but I was reading a lot of Buddhist um, philosophy and, and that idea of the self um, experiencing um, things rather than becoming things was very uh, important to me. And, and so that's what I mean about turning okay. the key. It's just about how you reframe what you're going through, I think. Novelist Matt Hake from The Pat Kenny Show. I think over the last year, I think we've all reflected on, on, on changes. I suppose it's, for me, it's put... Um, family front and center so i am actually going job sharing come september um which means it's a it's the same job but it's devised by two people um my dream job um some form of innovation some form of tech startup that potentially uh changes the world yeah have uh, you a few ideas up your sleeve not as of present and if so i'm keeping it close to my heart yeah. <laughs> copyrighted in it absolutely yeah, yeah indeed yeah my job hasn't changed. I've worked in the same job for 30 years. I'm an insurance broker and I've been working in the office since the pandemic started, so I'm the only one in there. So. And what about when your colleagues can start coming back to the office? No, I've got very, um, I don't know what the word, insular. I don't, because I go into work and my sweaty betties and there's nobody coming into the office, there's no customers. I worked out for the homeless accommodations and I think in Dublin City there's a lot of um, young people now that are struggling with drug addiction through the pandemic. I recently left my job because I found it detrimental for my mental health, seeing a lot of young people and even men before that probably having the use drugs that are using now. I think it's I think it's a joke to be quite honest. But so the situation got so bad that you just couldn't face going in? Uh, mental health wise it's just it's, it's so bad people seeing young people that come from all different backgrounds, wealthy family, middle class, lower class, and they're kinda of turning to drugs as a way of dealing with the depression of having to stay indoors, no socialising. So has it made you think now what you want to focus on? or what? Well, I still want to be in that line of work, but I, fortunately enough, I left my job three weeks ago when I found a job straight away. I can't stay still. For me, for my own health, I need to be working and, and helping other people. So I'm one of the fortunate ones, I'd say. Has your job changed? I got made redundant. I worked at the airport, so 
here's me out the door. Sorry to hear. So I'm looking now, but it's very hard. You're on the job hunt? Yeah. Handing out CVs? Handing out CVs, applying on LinkedIn and all that, and nothing comes back. Everything is like, sorry, we have too many applications. And if there's an employer listening today, what is your dream job? What would you love to do? Well, there isn't one because of the times we're in. You can't be that picky. It's At the moment, it's whatever comes just to make ends meet, you know. And yourself, have jobs changed for you? No, no. I work in HR, so I'm on the good side, good I side. should say. So, no, it hasn't. But you never know. It could. But has the last year made you think that you'd like to do something else? No, absolutely no, no. I do enjoy what I do, and I, won't, I wouldn't change it unless I become a millionaire and then I would stop working altogether. So how have things changed for you, or have you reconsidered your options? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I did a bit of acting before the pandemic, and then I was looking at, I got a security license last year. Now I'm working, trying to train as a welder, but I'm not sure if it's quite working out, so I think I'm going back to security. I'm all over the place with work at the moment, but I have prioritised finances over any idea of a dream job. You know, I just want to get kind of get straight, get money in, and, you know, be able to have a life. So it started with the dream job and now it's come to, as you said, finance security. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I, I used to do the acting and then I realised that I'd actually rather have money in my pocket and be able to afford a house somewhere, not in Dublin at least anyway, but uh, afford a house somewhere and get the car and do all the other stuff. But I can't do that where I am. So, But you never know. You could go back to the stage yet or the screen. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely could. Yeah, um, I'm thinking of like, you know, producing some kind of online content anyway you know, making YouTube videos on, you know, if I don't become a welder, maybe I can do that in my spare time and make YouTube content and have a laugh that way, you know. Josh Crosby reporting. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. This is the bit that amazed me. It seems I always read it at the start as satire of its subjects. Mm. I, the people to whom it referred seemed to read it as as lionization of them. It, like it got embraced yeah. by the people it appeared to want to pillory. Did that surprise you? Yeah, it 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 really disappointed me actually at the start. <laughs> <laughs> because you know you you know when you get invited to Blackrock College to give the senior cup team their pep talk, you know you've lost. You know, as a satirist, you just know there's something that's gone wrong here. Well, you you may not have noticed, Paul. I, I don't. Did you notice that I dressed up in your honour? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't want to say because I've seen you dressed like that before. <laughs> I wore my Leinster School's Senior Cup jersey, right? Okay, f- to do the interview. Yeah, they take it seriously, Ross. Yeah, no, they Ross. do. No, Paul. listen, I don't mind being called Ross. It's happened, but so they often. do. Like that's this is not yeah. a joking matter. Yeah, they they do. I think I think they do take it seriously. But I I also think there's a there's definitely an element of humour in there as well. I I mean I see it all the time when I I cover this BlackRock. We were filming at Blackrock Michaels last year and this this kid from Michaels just walked into the Blackrock section. It was just amazing. We had the camera. Adrian McCarthy was doing a documentary for RTE and he's kind of filming the crowd. And this guy, he, probably, he clearly knew who I was like, you know, because he was kind of playing up to the whole thing. And his collar up, walks into the Blackrock crowd and starts kind of walking the length of the, of the stand. And I could just hear this outrage starting up. You know, bleep off to your own side of the ground. Bleep off. Bleep off. Goes back to your own side. And he walked the whole length, like Liam Gallagher, shoulders back, cigarette, you know, smoking and looking everybody up and down. And then he walked back again. And when he got back to the end, he just looked in the camera and went, pack of virgins. And off he went. 
And I'm sorry, you, you have to have a sense of irony about it to do something like that, you know? To any extent, do you resent Ross O'Carroll Kelly at this point? Because some of the work, like if the, the, uh, by, the biography of Tara Brown that we, we spoke about, that was described by the Irish Times as a masterpiece. And some of your pieces of either ghostwritten work or some of your nonfiction work are really significant. And at the same time, you know, well, I have to churn out another Ross for the masses. Yeah. Do you ever think I'd, I'd like to take him out and just shoot him and be done? <laughs> um, no, not really. I mean, is it the checks, Paul? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean the checks are fine. I mean, I have a thirty-year mortgage. I mean, that's kind of uh, you know that that you know that that will keep you working, you know, until you're sixty-five. But not not really. I really enjoy doing it. Like you know, I, I've just finished the the new Ross book. It's out in a few weeks. It's called Normal Sheeple, and Ross he goes he takes his daughter on her to the Gwaeltocht and he sort of gets sucked into life in Kerry and ends up playing for Gaelic football for on Gwaeltocht. And there's always something to do with Ross, you know? And there's always something happening in the news that I think, how am I going to reflect that? How am I going to, how am I going to send that up? Like his dad is the Taoiseach now and he's kind of set Ireland on this totally, utterly insane course uh, where He's banning, like, Surika, Ross's wife, she's become the Minister for Climate Action and her crazy idea is to ban sheep and cows because, you know, they destroy, because they create harmful gases. And uh, and and Charles just basically wants to get rid of farming. So he's kind of gone along with this. So so Ireland is sort of changing under under Charles's, uh, Ch- uh, Charles's rule. But there's always stories, like, you know, and I really, I love writing Ross. I really do enjoy doing it. But... I, when I finish a book and I know I've got five months to do something else while planning the next Ross book, I love that as well. And I suppose it's the best of both worlds. I get to write the comedy that I want to write uh, and then do other things too. Some terrific stories there from journalist and writer Paul Howard from the Thursday interview. Now on Taking Stock this week, Gavin McLaughlin explored how anthropology can explain business and life. Here's Gillian Tett. Well, at any one time, we are all faced with a very complex world where we can only focus on part of our surroundings at a time. And we're also faced with all kinds of unpalatable realities of our life that we prefer to ignore because any elite um, likes to concoct or spin a creation mythology to justify what it's doing. And in the case of the bankers back in 2005, essentially they had this creation mythology about creating perfectly liquid markets, meaning that anything could be traded anywhere. And they were so besotted with this um, creation myth that they failed to see the contradictions in it, like the fact that the tools they were creating to create perfectly liquid tradable markets were generating products which were too complicated to actually trade. And the reasons they couldn't see that was because they were in a small group beset with tunnel vision. Or to take another example, when I looked at their PowerPoints and the rituals that they used to talk about their craft, although they said they were doing this to try and help all of humanity, there wasn't a single face in any of their PowerPoints. And that indicated that they'd kind of almost mentally written out humans from the end consequences of what they were doing with the financial innovation. And there's a wonderful scene in Michael Lewis's book and also the movie, The Big Short, where some hedge fund traders go out before the financial crisis and actually meet a pole dancer in Florida who is taking out subprime mortgages. And they realize that actually the subprime mortgage market is not acting 
in the way that they had thought in their equations. And the thing that's interesting was that that moment of truth was so rare because so few of the bankers were actually going out and meeting real life people. And so tunnel vision is a big problem. Um, and the same pattern of social silences and creation mythology leading to skewed um, vision is found in the tech sector, Silicon Valley today. Um, Explain how. Well, the techies, um, for the most part, um, also live in a fairly rarefied group. Um, they're in command of a language which very few other people understand, which gives them a lot of power. A bit like the priests in medieval um, church who spoke financial Latin or spoke Latin and no one else did. Um, and that gives techies a lot of power, um, a lot of sense of their own prestige. But also techies are trained by virtue of their education in computer science to look at the world in a sort of one dimensional frame. And they often extrapolate their computer science training onto how they see people, society, the world around them. Um, I used to spend time on the Facebook campus and I was very struck in the way that computer engineers would talk about social graphs or nodes when they were talking about people, not because they were bad people, um, but simply because they were reflecting the way that they were trained to think about others. I, um, I don't know, is it fair to apply apply this uh, view to, to techies as a whole? I, I'm sure there are there are some who, who don't uh, subscribe to, to, to this, but I suppose maybe the more important point is, do you believe, Gillian, that we're on the, the verge of a, a sort of a, a crisis in the tech sector because there's these kind of behaviours that cause problems in the financial sector before? I absolutely think that the type of pattern we saw in finance has played out in the tech sector. And it's one reason why we're facing this tech clash, this backlash against tech now. And the single biggest way that the tech sector could try and offset that is by getting out of their tunnel vision and trying to see the world through other people's eyes and look at how other people would look at them. And you're quite right to say, you know, I'm generalizing by talking about techies. Of course, not all people who work in the tech sector think this way. But the crucial point I'm trying to stress is this. We are all creatures of our own environment and of the cultural assumptions that we absorb unthinkingly. And there's a great Chinese proverb that a fish can't see water. We can't see the assumptions that shape us unless we do something which is core to anthropology, which is to jump out of our fishbowls go and look at other fishbowls, and then look back at ourselves. And the power of anthropology is that trying to think yourself into the minds and lives of others and trying to look at our cultural surroundings in a holistic way not only gives you empathy for another point of view, but also gives you a set of tools to actually look at yourself yeah. more objectively as well. Some fascinating research there from writer and editor Gillian Tesh from Taking Stock with Gavin McLaughlin. And of course, you can tune into Gavin every Sunday morning from 10 to 11. OK, I'm going to leave you with now Own Sheen and off the ball's crappy quiz. Have a great weekend. So that brings you to two, Nathan. Phil, you're on four. Neil, you're also on two. We tossed a coin before going on air. And if it is Neil versus Nathan, Nathan gets to go first. So the order in the final will be Phil, then Nathan then Neil and it is the round that separates the men from the boys the British and Irish lines from the tree lines it's a no team in particular ridiculously easy rapid fire round so the score you get in this round will be added to your score in the previous round there will be 40 seconds for everyone to answer from the same set of questions so as I said we're going to start with Phil then Nathan then Neil if you get a question correct I'll keep asking you questions until you get one wrong 
and it also means a deduction of one point. Phil, are you ready? Yep. Your 40 seconds starts now. Who were crowned Western Conference champions in the NBA this week? Uh, Clippers. No, Phoenix Suns. Who are National League champions in Camogie, Nathan? Kilkenny. Correct. Who's older, Carlo Ancelotti or Sam Allardyce? Sam Allardyce. Correct. Thorgan Hazard plays for what club? Bruce Dortmund. Correct. Who did Limerick beat in the Munster Hurling final last year? Waterford. Correct. Which club did Nuno manage immediately before Wolves? Porto. Correct. What event will Mark English run at the Olympics this year? 1,500 metres. No, 1,800. Who knocked Netherlands out of this year's Euros, Neil? Uh, Czech Republic. Correct. And what course will this year's Ryder Cup take place? Yes. Twisting the Straits. Correct. You did come <laughs> relatively close, but Nathan Murphy brings it home. Just to confirm, yeah. Phil finishes on four, on, on three. Nathan, you started on two, three, four, five, six. You finish on six. You, you are the champion once again. The champ. Now, people in YouTube, he has taken down Phil Egan back in your box. That was it. By the way, <laughs> you asked me a question about a sport that I can't stay up to watch because I work early shifts. Ah, here. <laughs> Come on. Uh, uh, no, you know, no, Phil, I... Phil, I'm going to disagree with you here. Oh, I've, I've been in on that. I've been, no, I've been in on that shift many times alongside you, Phil. And on Sky Sports News, all they do in the early mornings uh, is tell you who won in the NBA games the night before. This is embarrassing. Because that's Phil. all the content they have. Phil, you've been beaten. Now you're humiliating yourself. <laughs> so, Nathan, oh, I can't stop. I'm tired. I'm tired. Come on, you're tired. Oh, oh. It's literally your job to know this stuff. All I want to say and now is... Now you're too tired. Is that Nathan is fine. So wait a second. Wait a second. Will I tell Lee Dempsey? Oh, sorry. Phil's going to give you the sports news. Unless something happens after 8 o'clock in the evening, then he's a bit tired and he might uh, get to it. Obviously not. <laughs> like, is that what we should be telling Ian Dempsey? No, is that what I we should be telling them? I don't stay up till 3 in the morning, do I? Yeah, like, Check teletext in the, the morning. The next morning. So wait a second. So when the Olympics start and some of this stuff is on until 2 in the morning. So if Kelly Harrington wins gold at 2 in the morning, don't tune in to Ian Dempsey because you won't hear it because Phil will have been asleep and can't check it in the morning. Oh, you've yeah, think, embarrassed yourself. You've let yourself down. You've let yourself down. Get Adrian Barry back. Maybe get Rooney back. Come on. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.